Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, we'll visit two Kentucky history museums. The Lexington History Museum, or Lex History, has just moved to a a new space in the heart of downtown Lexington. I'll be speaking with Mandy Higgins. But first, we'll travel south to Bowling Green to the newly renovated African-American museum in that city. Our guide is project manager Watheda Buford. Ms. Buford, the museum in Bowling Green uh, has been there for some time, but two terrible events caused quite a lot of damage to the structure and to the museum's collection. And that was the the tornado and then a, a terrible fire. So give us the dates uh, that that occurred and and we'll talk um, about the the negative things first, and then we'll talk about how you've been able to bounce back from that. Uh, yes, the we were struck by a tornado December 10th of 2021. Two weeks after that, uh, the utility companies turned on all the utilities, the electricity in the area, and they turned that on about five o'clock in the evening, and it was on a weekend. Within Three hours, I think, by 8 o'clock that night, our building was completely engulfed in fire, the total building. So um, there was some kind of electrical problem uh, with that. But uh, the tornado damage had damaged the all of the windows, uh, the side where I'm sitting now, the office. But we were ready to come back into the building after they boarded up some windows within that two-week period when the utilities came back on. So I, I guess it's a blessing that we weren't back at the time because the whole building uh, caught fire. And how long had you been in uh, that location with that building as your museum before the tornado? We came here in 2014, I believe. And so your entire collection and your the tours, the events that you were having uh, as the African-American Museum in Bowling Green were all held in that location? Everything was here at the time. Now, if we had big events, like our annual uh, gala or whatever, it had had to be in a rented space, but tours were here, book signings were here, or anything like that that we had here, yes. Is there a a significance? uh, Well, first of all, let me just ask you, um, that's been a couple of years now. Uh, Are are you back on your feet? Uh, It looks like you have a nice nice office space there. Tell us about the progress that you've made to, to rebuild and refurbish. Well, uh, we are actually leasing a building from Western Kentucky University 
So we had to wait for them to get the building back together, uh, get it restored and whatever. So it's like we're in a brand new building because they completely restored the building. Um, the uh, contents of the building, the artifact, uh, with the help of other museum staffs here in Bowling Green, Corvette Museum, Kentucky Museum, Downing Museum. The night of the fire, somebody thought we got to get stuff out before it burned. And the firemen even helped. So they started loading up big trailers from Western to put our stuff on. I was out of town, so I didn't get in on that. Uh, but I, I was on the phone calling people, asking them to come and help and tell me what was going on. And they did. Um, it's amazing that we hadn't been working as a group before, but now we're all, we're calling ourselves the museum partners here. Mm -hmm. So we work together on a lot of stuff now. So it well, forms a partnership. Yeah. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful to have those friends and those partners. What is the significance of the location of the, the original building and where it is located in Bowling Green? Okay. Uh, at the time, we really weren't thinking about where it was located. We were just trying to find the building, and Western offered us space here. But we do a lot of work a lot of historical work on the African-American community, Jonesville. So technically we're at the corner of where Jonesville was, which is one of our, uh, uh, it's a display in our museum, the Jonesville store. So yeah, so that's the significance. Uh, but we talk about the other African-American areas too, but. This is in the Jonesville area. Now, I know that we're not going to talk about in detail the, the Jonesville community. That maybe is for another podcast on another day. But uh, describe for me um, Jonesville as the historians remember it that is no longer in existence today. It was a vibrant community, I think, uh, about 60 families lived in Jonesville. They had nice houses, nice yard. Uh, the story that a lot of people tell was that uh, the houses weren't kept up to par, but that's not true. Their, their neighborhood was very nice. I did not live in Jonesville. My father's mother lived in Jonesville, and I would go visit her a couple of times a month. But... Um, very, I've had businesses, uh, had uh, uh, cleaners, uh, a market, and then they had a shopping center with groceries, a donut shop, a pizza place, um, uh, churches, it had churches. Um, most of the, a lot of the males that lived in Jonesville were brickmakers and did a lot of masonry work around town. So, uh, there's a story to tell there. Uh, I'm just not the one to tell it. <laughs> Ms. Buford, uh, for those um, in our listening audience who might be 
familiar with uh, Bowling Green, might have attended Western Kentucky University, oh, and know the uh, one of the uh, towns, uh, many towns in Kentucky have a, a town square. If they are familiar with the town square and where Western is located up on the hill, uh, let's use the uh, the town square as a, a, a center point. Um, where where would Jonesville be located? Uh, how close to the to the square would uh, Jonesville have been uh, for those who remember going through Bowling Green at one time or another? The best way to tell where Jonesville was uh, is that it was located where part of Weston's campus is. Um, that's that's the easy way to tell it. Um, from downtown, the square. You could walk straight up College Street to the Henry, the Cherry Hall. Right. And then come down. Uh-huh. And Jonesville would be down. Right now, I'm I'm on the corner of the University Boulevard and the new roundabout that they have here. And uh, the area of Jonesville that we're talking about would be here and back to where the football field. Was. Yes. Well. Mm -hmm. People are are familiar with that geography. You you described that real well. Where was uh, now? When I read uh, a bit about the history of uh, of the museum and the history of the uh, locale, uh, I, I see the word uh, shake rag. Uh, tell me about that term and uh, what that means and how significant that was to the community. Shake rag was another African American community. Uh, where African-American families lived. Um, it, it again had grocery stores, churches, and just anything you would want in that area. Uh, Shape Rag was, uh, how, I guess the people lost their homes in Shape Rag when the medical center came, because that's all that's down in that area now. Uh, a lot of the houses went for eminent domain, uh, but all of the health places, most of them are down in that area now. But uh, there used to be clubs in Shake Ray. So one older gentleman that we spoke with when we were trying to find out about Shake Ray said that it, it was, people would go out on Saturday night where they're finding uh, clothes, but the women would shake their clothes when they were dancing. So that was one of them. And then the other, some of the others was that the, a lot of the women took in laundry, did laundry for people, and they would shake the rags as they hung up their laundry. So we've gotten two different stories. Um, maybe both of them. I don't know which one is true, which one, but that's what the older people were telling us. And where was the uh, the oldest church, the oldest African-American? Uh, was it the Consolidated Baptist Church uh, located in, in the African-American community? State Street Baptist Church. It's located on the corner of Fortin State. And, and that dates back uh, to, to 1838, is that correct? I think so. I think so. It's been damaged. Twice by fire, I think. Um, 
they've had, but they've been able to say the historic part, the structural part. And uh, yeah, it's so it's still a historic play. What uh, do you remember uh, only a couple of years ago after the fire? What was the process of um, of restoration? You said that uh, members from uh, Westerns uh, Museum community, uh, the Corvette Museum, other uh, partners joined you. Uh, were were there some artifacts that were burned beyond saving? And what did you do with the ones that were either destroyed in the tornado or burned? Uh, were you able to save quite a few of the artifacts? I say we were able to save about three-fourths of our artifacts, uh, which was surprising because the way that I was hearing that everything burned, I figured everything was gone. But we, are, we were able to save about three-fourths of some of the people, museum partners that had experience with fires, knew how to pack things up and how, uh, let me go back to the night of the fire when the truck came from Weston and they loaded, they were just bringing stuff out, loading it on the truck. But for the next two, three weeks, we worked over at Weston in service and supply trying to uh, pack the stuff so it would be saved because we knew we had to have it in store. So we packed it um, and tried to save as much as we can. Now, a lot of people think that all that was required was just dusting. No, <laughs> there are restoration processes that you have to go through. I have had two conservatives come in and look at what we've got to kind of tell us how to go about doing that. Um, we had a textile conservator come because we had a lot of military clothes and military uniform. And in fact, we're still working with her because I've had to ship some stuff to Atlanta for her to put some do some special processing. But they've given us, tell, told us what to buy, what resource to buy, and how to get the smoke damage and, and the soot off of stuff. Uh, you could look at a picture and say, oh, that looks fine, but you rub your hand across it and it's going to be black because yeah. it's smoke damage on everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just a matter of going through the cleaning process. And when I was looking for people to train us and teach us about the restoration, the guy from the Downing Museum, Jack Lassour, uh had been through a fire. Baker Museum down in Museum. He had been through a fire. So he says, well, I'll come over and teach your, your class on restoration. And then the girl, Leah Craig at Corvette Museum had knew something about it. So Leah and Jack came and held a workshop. And my board members, uh, Kentucky uh, Museum Board uh, and staff and Rotary Club, because I got a grant from the Rotary Club and their members came and we were taught how to restore. So we've had maybe three sessions on restoring and cleaning artifacts 
and we still got to have some more, but we've done that, and that's helped us be open now, where we are now, yeah. Miss Buford, what is your most, uh, or maybe more than one, a favorite uh, collection or item in the uh, in the museum at this point? What would you like to to invite people in to see that is most interesting to you? The Joneshill exhibit. I guess that piques an interest in me because as a child and as a youth growing up, I never knew what my grandmother and them were going through in Joneshill as far as their property and stuff. Back in the olden times, you didn't get involved in grown folk conversations or business. So I didn't know that that my grandmother was even having these problems about her property or anything. So I'm quite proud of the Jonesville exhibit. We, as a community scholars group, worked on that project this summer, and I was part of that. And uh, we have 15 posters, uh, and you go through them from one and go on to 15, and it tells the Jonesville story. Plus, uh, Alice Gatewood Waddell did a picture of what Jonesville looked like. So we have quite a lot to tell with that. So I guess I'm, I'm, that's my proudest thing, but everything I'm proud of because um, it's just history. And what do you want people to, once they go through the museum and leave, uh, whether they're tourists or whether they're native uh, Kentuckians or born and raised in Bowling Green, what do you want them to carry away from, from the museum after they have visited? The story, uh, the story of what happened to Jonesville, the story of what happened to Shea Craig. Uh, surprisingly enough, people will come in and say, I knew him. He, he's my uncle, my, my grandmama's friend. Or, so they're finding connection. Uh, I love for the young people to come, even my grandchildren, because you talk about it, but until they see it, it doesn't really mean anything until they actually see it. So I think it's good for the young people to come and see. And what are the uh, next steps for the uh, museum? You said that you would probably have uh, other workshops uh, for restoration of some of your artifacts. Uh, I know you want more people to visit. What what else is on uh, in your future there at the museum? We uh, will constantly be adding to what we've got up. Uh, we don't have nearly all of our stuff up. So yes, we'd have to have uh, restoration workshops and all of that stuff. But um, I want people to continue to bring us things because there's a lot more to be told here in Bowling. Um, I, I just want them to come and see. And I think once they come and see that they'll say, oh, I think I got that at home. Well, I got something at home you might want. So I think if we can encourage the community to come and then that'll work. You've been listening to Watheta Buford, who is the project manager for the African-American Museum in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, we want to thank Ms. Buford for being with us uh, this afternoon and sharing 
her story and the continuing story of the uh, museum, which has uh, uh, undergone uh, quite a, a restoration uh, since uh, a couple of events uh, only a short time ago. And uh, I certainly would like to uh, take the opportunity to uh, visit and invite anyone in the area that hasn't been to the museum uh, to visit. Uh, we're going to uh, take a break here, but uh, in just a moment, we'll hear the story of the Lexington History Museum uh, right after uh, this word from our friends at the Naslin Mann Graduate School in Writing at Spalding University. Spalding University's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing offers one-on-one -on -one faculty attention in a supportive literary community. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, or writing for TV, screen, and stage. Stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies, or travel on short-term study abroad. Flexible scheduling and affordable tuition put a top-tier MFA in reach. Learn more at spalling.edu slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalling.edu. Mandy Higgins joins me now on the Think Humanities podcast. She is the executive director of the Lexington History Museum or Lex History. Uh, we'll talk about uh, her new uh, location and uh, the museum itself and uh, a little bit of the history of the History Museum. Mandy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. This is a, uh, we're, we're uh, taping this, and uh, this is going to be up about the time that you're just turning around and taking a, a deep breath. So um, it, it uh, hopefully you'll be rested by next week when people are, are listening to this. But uh, let's just uh, begin and, and talk about uh, your tenure there and uh, um, what you have done since you have become a executive director, and a little bit of the history of the uh, of the museum, of the Lexington History Museum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am 10 months, almost to the day, into this gig um, as the executive director of the museum uh, in the first full-time executive director in almost a decade. So we, uh, the museum itself started in 1998 under the leadership um, of Mayor Pam Miller and Dr. Thomas Clark and um, charter members of the board were Betty Kerr, who's still um, active in historic preservation, Steve Amato from McBrayer and Foster Ackerman Jr., um, and we were in the old courthouse downtown on Main Street. And then in about 2012, um, the, the city found uh, lead paint dust and it was no longer safe for us to be there, for our artifacts to be there, for visitors to come to the museum. Um, so we had to close our doors and the um, collection went into storage. Uh, the board and Foster Ackerman particularly worked very hard to make sure that the museum stayed in people's minds through pop-up exhibits and um, pocket museums at some of the downtown locations, uh, partnerships with the library, doing uh, a, series, a lecture series, publishing books, um, but we didn't have a physical space and so it was very difficult Um to manage and to run. Um, and then last summer, um, through the work of consultants um, and the really um, 
extraordinary support from the Lexington Fayette Urban County government. We got a startup grant to get it back going. Um, and that's how I was hired. We were able to hire a curator um, and we signed a lease with the Bluegrass Trust to be at 210 North Broadway, which is the Thomas Hunt Morgan house. Uh, and we have the first floor to exhibit and have it's there. It's going to open on uh, Saturday, August 26th um, to to tell Lexington stories and to tell the history of the site. So that's the best news that uh, anyone who's been a, a supporter, uh, a patron, um, uh, a buff, a historian uh, buff, um, uh, but just a uh, someone who uh, thought that Lexington deserved to have a museum and because of the uh, horrific problem that uh, was discovered, uh, it just didn't happen right away, and it took a uh, took a while. Um, the artifacts uh, that uh, had been collected over the over the those many years, where were they stored, and and how were they stored? Uh, did the uh, did professionals come in and and help uh, put those away? Uh, no, it will um, no. <laughs> so. Board members worked very hard to make sure that they were stored appropriately and as properly as possible, um, but we had to vacate pretty quickly. So they were stored offsite um, across the city and are together again in climate controlled storage. And then um, a few items are on now display at the museum as well. And uh, among the items that you are most proud of that you would point uh, people to uh, make a trip to the new museum. What what would uh, that be? Why is it worth my time to come and and drop by the new museum? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do to tell Lexington's story and to stories really, and to be able to um, bring out pieces and stories that every part of Lexington can feel and see. A piece of themselves there. So I'm very excited um, always about our horse collection. Lexington's so great, um, so full of horse stories. But we have two of the five original paintings of African-American jockeys that were done by Joan Walker in um, the early 90s. And so that is a really lovely piece and helps center our um, interpretation of the horse industry. Um, and the work that's done here in Lexington. Um, we have, you know, for folks who love decorative arts, we have a sugar chest, we have a case clock that was produced here in Lexington. Um, and maybe the showstopper of the entire museum is the weather vane that was on top of the old courthouse until it was blown off in 1981. Uh, and Corman's and Associates uh, produced, fabricated a courthouse dome for us. So, you, it's sitting on top of the courthouse dome where it once belonged. And that's just a very cool um, piece. You see it as soon as you walk in the door and it really helps us center that story that all paths lead to Lexington. We're all here, we're all working together and we're all looking for that how the wind blows. In some of the work that we've done at uh, Kentucky Humanities, it always surprises me about the early stories and uh, certainly uh, the, uh, the downtown area uh, the streets, uh, the neighborhoods, um, some um, uh, colorful stories uh, about certain uh, areas. Can people come and, um, and and do research there? Are there 
Are there ways that they can come and spend some time there if they're interested in, say, writing an article or researching for uh, a school project or maybe even working on a book? Yeah, so we're not set up right now for for researchers, but we do have archival collections and we hope in the future to have a reading room um, where folks would be able to come and look through the archives. What they can do uh, is reach out to us through our website and our contact if they have specific questions and we can look through our archives and, and tell them what we have and then we can make an appointment for um, them to view it. What would you say that um, what you've learned uh, is one of the more interesting aspects of uh, the downtown area and what people see today uh, that um, is maybe still intact? Of course, we uh, some people immediately think of Cheapside or Tandy Park. Um, I would also it, it's really kind of uh, an odd happenstance, and I haven't yet identified. I will get the name of the building. But um, at the ophthalmologist office that I go to for my uh, eyes, there are two uh, really nice, big black and white photos. I'm assuming, because I can do some identification of the courthouse of downtown Lexington. And I'm just curious about what people come and see in those photos uh, that either aren't there today or they are there, they're just not like they used to be in the good old days. What what can you tell us about downtown area? Yeah, so downtown is incredible because it is both, as you mentioned, the sort of historic landscape that you can still identify. The courthouse um, has been in that patch of Tandy Park since the 1800s and various, you know, versions. Um but a lot of it is different. And every time I look at a map or look at a big aerial photograph, I think, wait, what? Like That didn't have to happen. So my favorite things um, about that, that change that we see um, are when folks see a photograph and we can say, oh, that's where the big blue building is, or that's where, um, that's where city center is. Mm. And and bring them back and orient them to today to think about where it was in the past. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is incredible and that we tried to work throughout our narrative for the exhibit uh, was Town Branch. Because as a, I, you know, I've been in Lexington for 20 years, so I feel native, but I'm not. And I know that I'm not to all of your listeners who are born and bred Fayette Countyans. Um, but I remember coming to college as an undergrad and folks being confused about why Lexington existed because there was no water, right? You come through downtown and there's not water, um, but it's the second biggest city in the state. There is water. We covered it up. Um, and we're obviously working very hard to bring those stories back. Uh, so center, so having town branch and having town branches stories and being able to point folks to no, you know, there were floods downtown. Here are some pictures of floods in the thirties because town branch overflow overflowed and water street was underwater. Um, it has its name matters. It, it did that. And to talk about, you know, early settlements, there's a story that was published, um, in the Kentucky Gazette in like the 1840s of um, um, diary entries from a, a man who grew up here, who came to Lexington in the you know 1790s or something. And he remembered being rescued from the schoolhouse where the courthouse is now um, from a flood, from town branch flooding. And he was 
ridden across horse on horseback or crosswalk what is now Water Street uh, to higher ground up on High Street to be safe. And that those sorts of pieces, I think, are really incredible. Um, and they're pieces that we can weave through all of these stories to say that this, you know, very compact downtown did and expanded and did all of these things. And then, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, but one of the other things I think is really fun um, is thinking about where farmhouses, the farms were, the plantations were, um, because Lexington now we would think, oh, Ashland, that's almost downtown, right? No, that's yeah. a horseback ride from downtown and Clay kept city houses and kept city, you know, quarters. And a number of the plantation owners um, did that. They had townhomes and then they had their plantation homes. Um, and the, but for us, they're just part of the landscape today that, oh, Ashland, yeah, it's just in a neighborhood. Um, but that really developed much later than we think it did, much more into the 20th century. You know, a couple of questions uh, out of what you said, and I, I've never thought to ask this before, and uh, this has not come up in any of the conversations I've had, but we're all familiar with uh, with Ashland, Henry Clay's home, um, the farm, or um, uh, whether it was um, aptly dubbed a, a plantation or not, I guess that's a matter of semantics, but what were the other farms or plantations that were similar to Ashland that we might know if we if we know the names of that same era were were there those uh, land um, farms that you might mention that we might know? Yeah, um, so they've gone through lots of different names over the decades. Uh, but for example, Shadeland was the Hunt family plantation. And it's very, it's, you know, Tate's Creek and Alumni Drive, that area. Um, and that's the Hunts and the Morgans hmm. and the Hunt Morgans. Um, the So they had the uh, property out there as well as the, the townhouse. The or townhouse. The home, in, the home in the town. Uh, yes, that, exactly. That, refer, that we all know of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, um, for a while, um, oh man, now I'm not going to get any of their names right. But there were, um, Clay Lancaster has an incredible map of antebellum uh -huh. farm homes so there were quite a few then there were yeah. quite a few um of course and they were yeah they were out county you know mm -hmm. they were out in the county mm -hmm. so they mm -hmm. this was long before the merger obviously yeah. it's in the 19th century uh so those a lot of those horse farms that still exist uh out in the county um were the seats mm -hmm. of um plantation farming of large-scale farming yeah. that involved in place. Do you know, uh, and I, I don't mean to, honestly, I do not mean to put you on the spot or to, to this is not a quiz or anything. I'm just curious <laughs> about some of these things. Uh, Town Branch, because there has been this revitalization in uh, an effort to um, uh, begin the park downtown and uh, the, the, the Town Branch is going to be um, rediscovered or it's going to flow again and all of that. Do you know when it was covered over or when it was rerouted or concreted over i guess uh like you said it's always been there yeah. it's just been underground i don't know the exact date um yeah. i believe it's in i believe it's a depression like a 40s 50s yeah. era 1940s 50s I era but that's i what i remember too yeah. yeah and and that was mainly again because it was causing havoc 
in the downtown mm-hmm. area with businesses. And there was that um, uh, there was that neighborhood that was nearby there. I mean, people used it to mm-hmm. to uh, to to wash their clothes in, bathe in, uh, all of that business. Uh, so th- there were reasons why it probably was not the safest or healthiest thing uh, to do, but it was there for a long time for use as, as a water source. Yeah. And even, um, you know, the distilleries by the 1890s that pop up in on Manchester street, most of them are not taking their water from town branch because it is so by then it has become so polluted. Mm -hmm. Um, but they rely on town branch. They, they're put next to, um, they build up in that area because the train tracks are there. So the train tracks ran with town branch in a lot of ways. Um, and then it, yeah, it was gross. It it got, (laughs) it was a, it was a health, um, hazard for quite a while. And, you know, now with the work to revitalize it, it's really important work. Um, and it's great to be down in the distillery district and to, to be in a modern space that is very historic and to, to know that that's there. Mm -hmm. Well, Mandy Higgins is the executive director of Lex History uh, museum. Now, Mandy, just to be sure, and I, I don't want to make this mistake, you want people to refer to it as Lex History and Lex History Museum. Is that the way you, you would like for people to, to know who you are and, and where you are? Yep. Uh, we Yes, Lex History for short, but the Lexington History Museum. Mm-hmm. And we are at 210 North Broadway, which is the Thomas Hunt Morgan House. Mm-hmm. And we'll be open to the public Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays. And if someone visits either from out of town or here as a, a resident, maybe a long time a native of um, Fayette County, what do you want them to to take away from after they visit uh, the museum? Thank you for that question. I want them to see that Lexington has been and always was a place of vast diversity um, that has made its impact not only in central Kentucky, but across the world from hemp to IBM, the first Nobel prize winner in Kentucky and so much more in between. We have um, deep and powerful stories to share with the public. And we hope that they find something that interests them. And then we can help them go deeper by either sending them out to our friends across the city um, who have those stories to tell or by working with them to tell those stories at the Lexington History Museum. Well said and uh, good luck. And we will all uh, try to uh, make a visit there just as soon as we can. And uh, we hope that uh, everyone will do that. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.